This podcast is a production of Vermont Law School's Environmental Law Center. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Hot House Earth. For those of you who have been following along from the very first episode, you'll know that Hot House Earth celebrated its first birthday in March. Woohoo! Woohoo! And Mason, we were busy planning a big birthday party where we were going to involve the whole school and all of our production crew and um, eat lots of cake. And also a special celebratory anniversary episode where we looked back at all of our eight episodes and brought some of our guests back to the show to give us a quick update on the various environmental issues that uh, we covered in those shows. We actually started recording that episode, but before we could finish... Around the country and here in Vermont, we've seen an increasing number of cases, which continues to grow. I need you to stay home. Doing so will save lives. It's just that simple. So, of course, the party was cancelled, the cake was cancelled, but we are still forging ahead and trying to put this celebratory episode together from our respective homes. Let's take a look back at the year that was. Well, we decided to check in with some of our experts that we spoke to on each of those episodes and see what's new in all of the different topics that we've explored. So Mason, do you remember all the way back to the farm bill? That was our first episode. I, I do remember <laughs> back to the farm bill. I remember showing up at the microphone and being incredibly intimidated by the microphone. I remember the same thing. We certainly learned a lot from that episode. Both in terms of the farm bill and in terms of doing podcasts. So that episode was trying to unwrap the mysteries of the 2018 Farm Bill and the relationship between agriculture and the environment. One of the experts we spoke to in that episode was Professor Sofia Krzyzewski, who's the director of the Food and Agriculture Law Clinic here at Vermont Law School. But when we caught back up with her for this episode, she said that shortly after we recorded the episode, the USDA decided to relocate two of its agencies outside of D.C. to Kansas City, Missouri. And that was a really controversial decision because it resulted in significant job losses um, and a lot of institutional knowledge, but it also slowed the process of getting grant money out to the organizations that need it. Professor Krzyzewski also gave us an update on the president's fiscal year 2021 budget, which will impact the funding allocated to many food and agriculture programs for an annual appropriation process. And we learned in the first episode that that can be a bit of a battleground. Here's what she had to say. The president just released the FY21 budget, um, which proposes significant cuts to many USDA programs, both discretionary funding, but it even goes so far as to propose eliminating certain programs that have mandatory funding as well. The Conservation Stewardship Program being one important example, which enrolls millions of acres of farmland and assists farmers in implementing conservation practices on that land. Um, of course, this is the president's budget, and Congress ultimately gets to decide what's in the appropriations bill. Um, but we have yet to see how that appropriations process will play out. So this is a, an opportunity for people who are interested in these issues to um, get involved. There are many organizations that do advocacy on this work um, that spoke in the podcast a year ago, like the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, American Farmland Trust. That will be alerting people in states when it's a strategic time to let your members of Congress know what programs are important to you and where they should focus funding. In light of COVID-19, you know, these types of advocacy are more important than ever. 
And especially, you know, we, we're really seeing how essential it is to sustain a robust food and ag system and just how vulnerable those supply chains um, and systems really are. So in our multi-part episodes on Trump's America First Energy Plan, we talked to Professor Hilary Hoffman about what's going on on public lands out west with regard to energy policy and energy development. And Mason, you had a chance to check back in with Professor Hoffman recently, didn't you? That's exactly right. I, I did because there's a lot going on right now related to what Professor Hoffman spoke about. So let's hear what she had to say. The last time we talked, there was great a great deal of fanfare from the White House about how there was a war on American energy. There was a need for energy independence to decrease the American reliance on foreign sources of energy like oil and gas. And then we saw that conversation shift to a narrative about energy dominance and about the United States becoming a net exporter of oil and gas in particular through the America First Energy Plan. However, in the past year, there have been fewer announcements coming out of the White House about the America First Energy Plan than in the preceding two years. And that could mean one of two things. It could mean that the White House is still undertaking various methods of uh, decreasing burdens on domestic energy production. Or it could also mean that the White House is being deterred by all of the litigation that's been filed by various national and regional environmental groups over the various agency actions to decrease all of the burdens on domestic energy production. So whether that's opening up new BLM lands onshore to oil and gas leasing, or whether that's removing national monument protections so that oil and gas can be leased on those lands. Um, All of those actions have been subject to litigation that has either succeeded in stopping the administration or has slowed down the pace of those actions using statutes like the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. It would be largely almost meaningless to update this podcast to talk about the current status of the America First Energy Plan without mentioning the tremendous impact of the pandemic on domestic and international oil and gas markets. So domestically speaking, with millions of people not taking any more trips, commuting or flying anywhere, the demand for oil has come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19. At the same time, there are international price wars that are going on between countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia that have caused the oil supply to swing up. This has caused a glut of oil that many commentators have remarked as being the largest oversupply situation that they've ever seen. So President Trump has announced that the U.S. will be able to fill its strategic petroleum reserve, which stores vast quantities of crude oil underground. Even if one views the America First Energy Plan as a success of the Trump administration and that we do have this oversupply of oil and gas, the fact is that we don't need it and that Americans might not want it after the virus passes and life is changed, perhaps in many ways, forever. While we were recording the Trump America First Energy Plan trilogy, 
the US-Mexico border wall became a huge news story because President Trump was at that time trying to appropriate military funds to pay for the border wall. And um, there was some really significant case law moving through the courts in that moment. And we were specifically looking at that Sierra Club case, and we had Professor John Echevria from Vermont Law School explain the connection between the border wall and the environment. And he walked us through the Sierra Club case, which was against the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And we learned that unlike most other federal actions, like oil and gas leases on public lands, for example, environmental laws like NEPA and the Endangered Species Act don't necessarily apply to the construction of barriers and roads at the southern border. And those laws can be waived for border walls. And that makes it really hard to challenge their construction on environmental grounds, even though things like border walls can have really significant environmental impacts, especially when they're built in haste, like the border wall seems to be. Um, And that's why the Sierra Club was bringing this case on the appropriations process instead of on environmental law grounds. Um, I think the idea behind it being if you can prevent the spending on the wall, you can prevent the building of the wall. And if you prevent the building of the wall, you prevent the environmental impacts. Again, it's fascinating with (laughs) COVID-19 is that actually there's been a resurgence with the border wall work. And specifically in Arizona, President Trump and the administration is speeding up that border wall construction. um, And they're moving forward with it right now as we speak. And that's because, sadly, right after we released the episode on the border wall, the Supreme Court held in favor of the president, allowing him to appropriate those Pentagon funds for the construction of the border wall. And the Supreme Court actually said in that case that the Sierra Club that's the environmental nonprofit group that was bringing the case, they were not the right plaintiffs to be challenging the reallocation of funds. Our next episode highlighted a different environmental issue related to border walls and immigration, and that's climate migration. And that's specifically where people or, or even entire populations are being displaced by the increasingly severe effects of climate change like hurricanes, fires, sea level rise, um, which causes them to relocate to other areas, either within their own country or even across borders into other countries. We were really lucky to have two experts on that show who I think we both really admire. Professor Barry Hill, who teaches environmental justice here at Vermont Law School, and Professor Carmen Gonzalez, who is an international environmental law scholar at Seattle University School of Law. And I actually had a chance to catch up with both of them in New Orleans recently, just before COVID-19 sort of shut the world down. And were there any updates on the climate migration situation? Unfortunately, not really. I checked in with Professor Gonzalez and she said that there really hasn't been any significant development at the international level in this area since last summer, which is um, pretty disappointing, but perhaps not terribly surprising. But there were some really inspiring and optimistic um, points of view shared at the conference. For example, Professor Hill spoke about environmental constitutionalism at the state level, highlighting that some states seem to have a real vision for resolving environmental and climate injustice. Um, And at the conference, he specifically focused in on New York as an example. They've passed a number of legislative measures over the past few months, including environmental rights amendments to the state constitution, environmental justice legislation, public nuisance legislation, and climate change legislation. Yeah, and we gave Professor Hill a call after the conference to follow up on on this theme. 
Yeah, and here's what he had to say on that. On December 20th, as a matter of fact, of uh, last year, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands issued its ruling in the Eugenda case, which is a uh, major climate change case. And uh, the court was asked basically two questions. The first question is whether or not Netherlands is obliged to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gas gases from Dutch soil by at least 25% by the end of this year, 2020, compared to 1990 levels. And the second question was whether the court can order the state to do so. And the answer in both uh, uh, the answer to both questions was yes. The court has the authority, and Netherlands is obliged to do that based upon the uh, Dutch constitution. So, as far as the Netherlands is concerned, there is a constitutional right that the people of Netherlands have uh, to clean air, clean land, and clean water to address this issue of uh, climate change. So that's a major accomplishment as far as the world is concerned. So Mason, you are out for the next episode because you became a dad for the first time in September last year. That's right. But you guys covered a really cool topic. Yeah, and it was related to you becoming a dad. It was on the youth climate movement. And honestly, my favorite thing about that episode was bringing you and JJ and George into the studio and talking about how it impacts you personally. Oh, Jenny, you're awesome. But we also had some really great speakers. So we had Eric Dorfman, who's a local high school student and... Um, Actually, his album has come out for anyone who's interested, Liberating Gaia, giving it a plug. Um, And he spoke to us about the youth perspective on the youth climate movement. And we talked a little bit about um, what the movement is. Is it actually a movement? What it means to young people who are taking to the streets and trying to make a change in the world. We also spoke with Russell Mandel, who is a master's student here at Vermont Law School. And we caught up with him recently to see if there'd been any major developments relating to the youth climate movement. And Russell was really excited to talk about the Juliana case, which you'll recall from that episode we had uh, Pat Parento speaking to Gus Speff about. The biggest development is the rejection of the Juliana case by the Ninth Circuit Court. Um, But... In the rejection, they got one of the most powerful dissents I've ever read in my entire life. Uh, Justice Stanton wrote, um, it is as if an asteroid were barreling toward Earth and the government decided to shut down our only defenses. Seeking to quash this suit, the government bluntly insists that it has the absolute and unreviewable power to destroy the nation. And Even though the court struck it down, the courts did agree with the existential threat of climate change. They just thought the courts were the wrong place to actually get this change that the uh, youth wanted. And the right place to go was through the political process. And young people are continuing to engage there with great success. Um, In fact, uh, climate change has never been a more important issue to Democratic voters in a primary. It's up to 85% from just 62% in 2016. And that's a direct result of the advocacy of young people um, like the Sunrise Movement who helped create a climate town hall 
which all the candidates participated in and described their strategies for combating climate change. So that leads us to our final and most recent episode, which came out in February, which was on environmental justice and civil rights. So we don't have any updates for you specifically in that episode, but if you haven't done so already, we encourage everyone to go and have a listen. In that episode, we spoke with Vermont Law School professor Marion Engelman Lotto and some of her students here at the Environmental Justice Clinic about environmental justice and civil rights. And we were fortunate to be able to speak with some of their clients in the Ashurst Bar Smith community about the environmental impacts that they are experiencing as the result of a huge landfill that moved into their neighborhood. Mason, looking back, we've covered such a lot in our first year and we've learned a lot. For me personally, I was really nervous about taking on this task. It was so far outside of my comfort zone um, that I wasn't sure how it would go. And I sort of gave myself a couple of months to try it out. And we're still here. So that's pretty cool. Jeannie, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it was definitely outside of my comfort zone. But, you know, it has been such a gift. And I guess um, one of my favorite things about this year and the podcast and looking back at the episodes that we've done is the people. And, you know, um, that includes both the experts, um, you know, that we've spoken to both here and at BLS and, and beyond, but also, you know, the advocates out there really making change. And also a lot of the community members who are being impacted by some of these harms that we've been discussing. And for me, it was such a treat to be able to look beyond renewable energy law and policy, which is what I specialize in at the Energy Clinic, and learn about a much more diverse set of environmental issues that both America and the world is facing right now. I've really enjoyed that process. Me too, Jeannie. It's it's really broadened my eyes as well as far as the power of the law to make change and also the role of law and policy in making this world a better place. I'm so grateful to our incredible team that we have behind the scenes helping the podcast be what it is. And, you know, it's not just you and I uh, here on the recording. There's a robust team behind the scenes. So, for example, Emily Potts, who spends hours editing out our mistakes. Um, we have Anne Linehan from the Environmental Law Center and Molly McDonough, who's jumped in and helped us with our scripting. And of course, Jenny Rushlow, the director of the Environmental Law Center. We're so thankful to all of our listeners for tuning in each time we release an episode and learning with us. We hope you'll continue to listen and share our episodes into the next year. You can help us out a ton by leaving a review. You can find our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at hothouseearthpodcast.com. Until then, we're going to give Professor Pat Parento the final word to close out this episode. All right, so the assault on the environment continues. From last summer, the Trump administration is out to repeal and roll back every environmental protection on the books, which makes the upcoming election the most important election in history for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is dealing with the climate crisis, it's dealing with repairing all the damage that the Trump administration has been doing over the last four years, and God forbid they would get four more years to do even more damage. So getting out the vote, educating the public, motivating people to vote for candidates 
who will restore environmental quality in this country, confront the climate crisis, transition to a clean energy future, a clean transportation future. That's what we need to be doing. <music>